Weird Al Yankovic, Sarah Watkins, Doug Benson, Ahmed Best, Janina Gavankar, Busy Phillips, Open Mike Eagle, the composer of Rogue One, Michael Giacchino, and even more people are going to be performing at the Join the Resistance Star Wars-themed book release slash benefit for public council, a nonprofit organization who provides pro bono legal services to underrepresented communities in Los Angeles. This is also uh, a celebration of the new book that Ben Acker and I wrote called Star Wars, Join the Resistance. It's the first in a series, and it's Star Wars canon. It's about a bunch of kids who join the Resistance against the First Order. As I said, Weird Al... Doug Benson, this is going to be a super fun show. Our pal Matt Gorley of Super Ego uh, wrote a song years ago called Stormtroopers Are People Too, and we're going to be doing some stuff with that. It's going to be a lot of fun. March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. Go to largo-la.com for details. We hope you can join us for what will be a fun evening and a good cause. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight. Whenever the time is right, it's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Welcome to this show. We're going to do something a little unusual today, where I'm talking to my friend Christine Lennon, who wrote a new book, The Drifter, which we are going to discuss. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk for a little bit before we get to the, uh, this week's episode, but I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Christine, hi. Hi. Uh... Tell me and tell the reader or the listener about this book. Is this your first novel? It is my first novel. I've been a journalist for a really long time, probably about you know 23 years or so. Um, and it's my first time I've ever been tried to write something longer than 3,000 words. So it was um, 
you know, it was a challenge, but I'm really happy it's out in the world. That's great. Um, tell us just briefly what the book is about, and then we'll kind of dig into where it came from and, and why now for you, too. But. That's an interesting question. Um, I um, The book is about a group of friends uh, who are in college who experience a violent event that changes their life going forward into adulthood. It's loosely based on real events in that um, when I was at the University of Florida in Gainesville, there was a serial murderer on the loose who killed four women and a man, all, you know, students in and around the community. And it was really life-changing in ways that I didn't really understand at the time. But as I've gotten older, I realized it was really kind of a signal... You know, you really start to understand your own mortality when something like that happens around you. Mm-hmm. And it kind of uh, lends your life a little bit more urgency than it would have had without it, maybe. But, and I realized when I told people I went where I went to school, I said I went to Gainesville, school in Gainesville, Florida, I would always see kind of a flicker of recognition in their eyes. Like, oh, is that where? Oh, interesting. And um, so anybody around my age group who was in college, maybe four years ahead of me or behind, kind of has this memory. Um, And it was one of the first big headlines, national headlines, with uh, college campus violence. And Hmm. so I think the details sort of stuck with people. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a story? Uh, Because, uh, you know, look, you've lived with this story for Mm -hmm. a long time now. Was it a story that you would visit that you would try to, as a journalist, approach in other ways? That's an interesting question. I... um, I think I did want to think about it in terms of a journalistic perspective, mm-hmm. right? Where I, it helped me in this first foray into fiction to have a real event in a real place mm-hmm. and a real time to kind of sink my teeth into. Um, because, you know, you're, you're trained as a magazine journalist in particular to sort of telegraph a reader to a place and use all those details. Like, you know, the color of the sky or way, the way the air felt or, you know, you know, giving people context about what the culture was like at that time. And, um, you know, I never really wanted to do a true crime book. I never thought I wanted to get into this big investigative story because that had been done extensively. This was a pretty high profile trial when he was eventually, he was never, the murderer was never, his name was Danny Rowling and he never was caught by the police, but he was arrested for uh, robbing a grocery store Mm -hmm. and then ended up confessing in prison. So to one of his fellow inmates, it was pretty crazy. So that the journalistic sort of investigative part of it had been done, and now I really wanted to use it as a way to talk about um, friendships and relationships and and uh, what happens when you live your life wishing you had done something differently, you know, mm-hmm. kind of carrying some guilt with you. And it's kind of one of those sliding door stories where if I had taken a left and not a, or a right or been 15 minutes late or done one thing sure. differently, everything would have turned out differently. Did it take... I'm curious to hear about the thought process to sort of land on this is the way to tell that st- mm-hmm. this story. Well, I tried a bunch of different ways. You know, I've been working on it for about three years before mm-hmm. I sold it to um, William Morrow. Um, and I tried I tried using the actual details of the, you know, using his name and doing taking it very literally and, mm-hmm. you know, using the exact timeline. And that was pretty restrictive. And also I didn't want to... You know, I really am not into exploiting, you know, the victims' families for, you know, in that way. I, I wanted to be sensitive to to them, and mm-hmm. you know, their families are still alive. Their friends are still, you know, my age, right? Sure. And um, I wanted to be sensitive to that. 
you know, I, I got, I like to say I got about 150 pages into what I thought was a thriller, like a straight thriller. And then I realized, oh, no, no, I'm kind of taking this, I'm getting this all wrong. And I had to, what I really wanted to write about was, I wanted to write a suspenseful story, but the suspense came from these friendships more than it did from this blood and gore, right? It, it wasn't, you know, obviously it's set against this backdrop of this really incredibly stressful time in college where this is all unfolding around these characters. But the suspense in the end, I think, really came from these very tense and kind of destructive friendships in the, sure. in the book. The personal stories. Exactly. Uh, that's really That's really interesting, and it makes it much more of a literary sort of story, I think. What What are your tastes as a reader? Oh, that's interesting. I like all sorts of things. I'm, oh man, I read, it's like a schizophrenics like reading list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, um, I'm into contemporary fiction. I love, you know, Ann Patchett and Kate Atkinson and these kind of female writers. I also loved um, All the Light We Cannot See. That felt really raw and um, scary in a way that I have I didn't even realize I liked right mm-hmm. I I like I think we all like to experience this kind of extreme world from the safety of our own home right I sure so you write about a serial killer kind to get this sort of to it's like it, it's exciting in a way if you as long as you don't actually have to be in the right. presence of a serial killer <laughs> but um yeah I I don't know I my tastes are pretty diverse. I, I loved this book called Jenny Awful, um, called Department of Speculation by a writer named Jenny Awful. Mm-hmm. That was so great. I'm really into Eden Lepucky. I don't know if you know her. I don't know her. She's from Los Angeles, and uh, she lives up in the Bay Area now, but she wrote this book called California, which was, um, it's like a, I don't want to say post, post-apocalyptic, but it's got this real kind of end of days feel like what happens in Los Angeles after like a big event sort of erases a lot of the population. And and she's like, it's this kind of, I loved her. And she's got a new book out right now called Woman Number 17 that is also, it's a Los Angeles story and it's uh, it's really dark and twisted and, and great. So I especially like when I read about other mothers like me mm-hmm. who can go to that really dark and scary place and still feel like they're not like child services isn't going to come sure. and like take us away. <laughs> well, that is like, that's, that's the thing you have to contend with. I feel yeah. as uh, an author, as a prose writer, especially like you have to put so much of yourself in this, right? So yes. how, how do you keep yourself Safe. How do you keep yourself separate, but also put your passion, your interests, your humanity into the book? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I um, There's a lot of compartmentalizing that goes on, you know, where sure. I, I wrote a lot of this book between 8.30 and 1 o'clock in the morning, right? 8.30 at night and 1 a.m. after my kids were asleep, and I could kind of dip into this other world, I could turn off that part of my brain that was like the air traffic controller that's sort of tracking everything that happens in my home. Um, and, you know, so a lot of this character, I have some obvious similarities with the main character um, in that we both lived in Florida. We both worked at bagel stores. We both <laughs> moved to New York when um, in our early 20s and kind of struggled with this idea not really struggled, but sort of craved this reinvention, right? Like getting to New York and just starting starting from scratch mm-hmm. in this really anonymous environment. But that's really where the similarities end. Uh, I felt... Um, but those are all sort of surface similarities, Yes, too. exactly. I mean, They're very much just biographical details, right? right? And it wasn't so much our inner life. And 
after a while, I mean, Betsy started out feeling a lot more like me in the beginning when mm-hmm. I was writing, and then as she became a character in her own right, like it was, it, you know, it was very different. She's very different from me. I mean, she's much darker, and she's a terrible friend. <laughs> So I feel like I'm a much better is that, friend. Is that fun to write? Oh, God, yeah. It's fun. I mean, I, if people ask me, are you the main... I mean, is this protagonist you or this other... There's like a, the ultimate mean girl in the story. Okay. Um, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that there's part of me that's Caroline and there's of a part of me that's Betsy and a part of me that's Ginny, this other friend in this trio. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it was fun to... I, you always hear about you know novelists saying... I just created these characters and let them speak to me. And it just sounded so pretentious and I was just cringing. And then I think in a way I felt the same way. Like I created these people and then after a while I thought, you know, that's not something she would do. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't th- I would think of them and I kind of miss hanging out with them in my head sometimes, right? It's sure. been a couple years since this has been <laughs> finished, but... um I, you get why people write a series. Yeah. Oh God. You want yeah. To live with these characters. Exactly. For a while. That's really funny. The joke is that the sequel to this book will be how um, like forty women I went to college with will plot my murder <laughs> because they're not going to want to see themselves portrayed in this light. And but they're all going to think it's them. They, I know. It's kind of like the like the help. Remember the help when mm-hmm. they were like reading that book and like. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's a, it's sort of the '90s murder mystery version of the Help. Right? Is that, is <laughs> That's a great pitch. First of all, go write that book. That's not this book. Go write that book exactly. also. That's a hit. Um, tell me about your your writing habits. It's interesting to hear. I mean, look, you have kids, so you are writing after they go to sleep. It sounds like mm-hmm. I can do all the journalists. I still write for magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. during the day, and I've been doing that for so long that it, that's my nine to five. Right? Mm-hmm. That's I can. Um, go in the morning and, you know, put the, put away the newspaper and just kind of get, get to work kind of and and do that. But I think because I live in Los Angeles, I've been here for, you know, 14 years. I think so much of my writing happens in the car, like in my brain, yeah. right? So you're driving around and you're thinking and thinking. And um, what do you do to hold on to that? That that gets lost so easily, I find. Yeah, I, I, you're totally right. Um, I have, uh, you know, you... But poor Andrew, my husband, is like, it sucks to be in a relationship with someone with total recall, right? Like, because I can remember every conversation we've had and like, no, you said this. No, but I, my brain, you know, I've been a journalist for so many years that I'm supposed to sit down and talk to somebody and, you know, and then I record the conversation, obviously, and transcribe it. But I've kind of, my memory um, is pretty good for this kind of stuff. Um I do, you know, you always have a pen and paper. I always have a notepad in my bag. And if I really am worried about something going away, I will write it down. I'll pull over and write it down. But um, just in the last year or so, I've had these moments where I'm like, you know, when you're really feeling like it's a physical effort to find a a memory. I was just, I just, I had the perfect solution. And then I feel like I have to like close my eyes and clench my <laughs> fists and like we'll hope for it to come back. back yeah but yeah I do that I write it a lot before I sit down to actually write it and mm-hmm. then you know again journalistic thing it's like just get the lead if you if I can mm-hmm. sit down and get the first paragraph of any story um I can kind of all right I've got it if I can figure out how to just get the reader in, into it in the beginning mm-hmm. and um you know, I'm kind of a professional word counter. You write for magazines for so that. long, and uh, I can kind of like, oh, I think I'm done. And then I know it's it's almost exactly 1,500 words every time because that's the way magazines are. It's all really short, quick mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, these abbreviated stories. And uh, 
I always stop writing at 1,500 words. And then if it's a longer assignment, like 3,000 words, I have to go back and then like sure. build on it from there. But That's a really funny thing. And I've, I've noticed this. I'm working on a book now myself, and I'm on a deadline, so you know it has to get done. But 1,500 words is really comfortable. Yes. It feels like work. It's not too easy. I agree. But... Once you start pushing beyond that, it really becomes hard. It is. And then you have to pick out, like, so which of these paragraphs, which of these thoughts needs to be teased out more, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, 350 pages is not easy. Like, I I really had to write for a while and then step away Mm. and then come back. And, you know, it was whenever I was feeling really down about it. I had to kind of say, oh, let's put it away because really? I didn't, I, I was just ready to scrap it all. And I think, you know, our attention span is so short, right? These days, the way that we consume information in media, it's like, if you've been reading something for more than two months, <laughs> oh, it's tired, right? It's so boring. Yeah. So I would literally put it away for five months Wow. and then I would wait to see if it came back, right? If mm-hmm. I got excited about it again. And if I opened the file and I was reading it and I didn't totally cringe... I felt like, okay, let's keep going. It's worth it. That's and really uh, I think I can't remember which book I read. You know, Stephen King on writing is one of my favorite, favorite Absolutely. books. And then um, Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Mm-hmm. I reread that, you know, right before I started writing the book. And it was just like when she says to tune out that radio station in your head, K fucked, right? The two, <laughs> like you've got the yep. two commentators kind of like criticizing you and your work. <laughs> it was. I don't know. I never thought that I'd be one of those people who wrote the books about, read the books about writing, but they were very helpful. Those two in particular are yeah. really, because they feel so practical, mm-hmm. they're a real kick in the ass that are like, you can absolutely do this. I know. Um, it was great, especially Stephen King and talking about yeah. the alcohol abuse in his, you know, and how this, the myth of the writers having to be damaged, like people. And I loved reading that. I, yeah. I feel like I just wanted to read it, want to read it again, Which just to I, visit with him. Read it before every book. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a good idea. Um, so in these months that you would take off, clearly the story was stewing. Like it, there was churning around in there. How much, how much did you discover on the page? How much did you know what this story was going to be? Um, that's, oh, God, I don't even know. I think um, it went through many, uh, many different iterations, right? I, I wrote the first version and then gave it to my agent to find an agent, right? And um, her name is Brittany Bloom, and she was brilliant. She saw that story so clearly and was such um, a partner with for me. Um, that's great. Such a keen editorial eye. And I do think that, you know... Honestly, so much of the editing happens with literary agents these days because it's just how it works, right? Yep. They have to really believe in the story, and, and, and she had really great ideas. So um, then it totally changed form after we started working together. And then, um, I, you know, I would... After we signed, I had signed on with her, it was kind of like off to the races. But then the months before, I, I guess I'm, I'm sorry I didn't answer your question completely, but the um, in the months, yeah, I would think about it and think, what would they do and how would this happen? And, and, and suddenly it would seem very clear to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I learned, I mean, Andrew is good at this. My husband goes for nice long walks whenever <laughs> he gets that block, right? Yeah. And so um, yes, and I would really just 
spend some time where you don't have any other distractions, just kind of walking along and thinking. And, um, and then sometimes just these ideas would come even, you know, obviously when you're not trying to think about it is when it happens. Yeah. Do you find yourself sort of shutting things out or being selective about what goes in (laughs) so you can get the right stuff out? Absolutely. And I, you know, I listened to a lot of music during when I was writing this Mm -hmm. book and especially to it's, you know, 1990s when the story starts. And it was just, that's such a, I mean, I'm so cliche, like the 40 year old woman driving around listening to 90s music. Awesome. But it's (laughs) just like, I loved all those sub pop bands and, you know, you think about it, in August of 1990, MC Hammer was on the cover of Rolling Stone, right? <laughs> sure. And it was just, oh, really? It, we had just gone through those Reagan 80s and we had, <laughs> and we're in this weird, like, vapid, empty kind of time in our culture. And yeah. then MC Hammer was this guy, right, to represent it, the real, like, the <laughs> cultural nadir, right? And so six months later, I think Bleach by Nirvana, that mm-hmm. record was out and everything changed. And so it was a cultural 180 in so many That's ways. So And uh, so in order for me to get in this frame of mind, I did listen to a lot of music and I did try to not read anything similar to what I was writing because I just, I mean, I read some Megan Abbott books before I got Mm -hmm. started because she's kind of a master of suspense. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was, and then after that, I just had to, I had to read something very different, like historical fiction or whatever, just like biography, just to get (laughs) fully out of this and not feel like I was absorbing other ideas and kind of like letting them influence me in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, and, and did you discover a different, uh, narrative style than you have to your journalistic style? Um, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, I really did. Um, it's, it, that's, it's kind of hard to answer because I do feel my writing, I, once I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, I recognize that as like, it could have been something, a magazine, a magazine story, but I was never really given the opportunity to, um, go that far with my own opinions and ideas, mm-hmm. right? In, for a magazine. Sure. Um, I guess I'm just really into details. And if you don't like details and you might not like this, but I, I do like, you know, kind of really describing what's around me and like getting into the minutia of it all that I think that appeals to me. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I guess I went, I, it's kind of a version of my journalism style, like to the power of 10 kind of. (laughs) Sure. There's, it's funny. uh, And this is getting real nerdy, but I read a, a book review recently, which this was a negative aspect to it, which was basically the person saying the author uh, hasn't met an adjective that she doesn't love. <laughs> and, like, that's the fear, right? Like, that's oh, the yeah. way it goes bad. <laughs> but uh, did you discover the good version? Like, if you want to kind of hone in on details, yeah. how do you Not be self-indulgent? Yeah. Like, how do you not go too far? Because this is a huge fear for me. Oh, I get it. And, you know, and the overly adjectival writing is really <laughs> irritating, right? Yeah. And I get it. Um, it's kind of like that fashion rule about accessories. It's like, take one off before you walk out the That's door. Great. I do think it's... Um, <laughs> I had to go through each sentence and be like, is that just self-indulgent? Mm-hmm. Or does that serve the purpose? Does that, does that move the story along? Yeah. And I did have to trim a lot. Um, and in Was some, that easy to do? No. <laughs> no I mean, I'm an, I've been an edited writer now for t- you know, like 23 years, so I feel like I don't have a lot of ego attached to the edit. I didn't feel like, oh, I can't lose this. It's so great. Right. I, I felt like it always got better because of the cuts. And I think um, I loved 
you know, my editor was her name, Emily Crump at William Morrow is amazing. And she was really kind and also disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. Where she would say, I don't know about this. I love this. Like more here, less here. And it did help to have a trusted source editing. I mean, a trusted um, kind of ally with the red pen, right? Mm-hmm. To Absolutely. help you real to focus. Because yeah. um, you can't, it can be a little bit overkill and and it can get easily in that go easily down that path but um did you have to have distance too from these edits or i mean it sounds like the process was fairly long anyway it was about a year and a half between like when they they sold the book i sold the book in july of 2015 and it just came out um now so it was a I, you know, you just have to really put your ego on the shelf and just say, I, it's important to me to, to get this book into the world and I, they are professionals and I mm-hmm. trust them. I did fight a couple of things. Um, you know, it wasn't all just like, you right. know, bow down. You um, don't take every note. No, God, no, do not take every note ever. <laughs> but I do feel there were some things that were worth fighting for and I just had to kind of save that, right? To save mm-hmm. it for the arguments that really mattered. Yeah, I, and, I think it's that's important to uh, that yeah. distinction. 100%. Um, all right, so people can get this book, The Drifter. Uh, they can get it on Amazon. They can mm-hmm. get it at their local bookstore. Yes. Which they should do, right? Yes, I know. Um, and you're going to be out in the world plugging this book, right? Yes, I'm trying. I'm going to the East Coast. Um, Are you doing readings and appearances and things? I'm doing them in Boston and in New York and then um, in Tampa at Oxford Exchange. Um and then in San Diego at Warwick's Books on March 8th. Oh, cool. And then in Portland, I'm not sure the date yet, but it's uh, I, it's trickling in. We'll see how, how it goes. How can people find you for these things? Um, well, two, some of them are private events, but okay. I feel like on my website, I have all the information for anything public. It's all there. It's christinelennon.com. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to add some more dates in the spring if it... If it grows, we'll see. And if, you know, I'm just happy that it's out in the world and I'm ready to get started on the next one. That's great. Yeah. It hasn't turned you off to writing. No, no, not yet. Uh, Does it feel like floodgates are open now? Like you you are really eager to dig in? I am. I feel like I had to check off a lot of things on my to-do list, my life to-do list in order to let myself kind of... go to this place of writing fiction and I, I really liked it and I'm hoping I'm really hoping to do another one you know and That's great congrats thank um, you you mentioned a couple of books that you've read lately that you've enjoyed mm-hmm. what else have you put in your brain uh, lately movies TV anything that you oh, want to yeah. recommend I um, loved Stranger Things obviously so much I'm, I'm dying for the next one <laughs> um, I uh, what else see we we were kind of into the OA. I know that was kind of controversial, but I felt like... I've heard both ways on it. People right? love it. People have recommended I do not watch it. I know. I just... It was so weird and out there and earnest, and, and I was just like, this is not something I would typically like, but I was really blown away. Cool. Um, I thought it was a really original story. Um, I love Black Mirror mm-hmm. on Netflix. Um, that one episode with Bryce Dallas Howard that, you know, about the social media was fantastic. And I don't know. I, that's it. These are good answers. Thank you. Christine, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, Bob Daly, thanks for talking. Sure. Thanks for ha- having me. So we are in the Superior Donuts offices. Yes. Um, which is a show you are running. Are you co-running? And how co-running you with, with Neil uh, Goldman and Garrett Donovan. Okay. We, co- we co-wrote the script together based on 
a play by Tracy Letts. Um, uh, we actually started writing it 14 months ago, and it just hit, it just aired last night. So it's been a long journey. We you know recast the pilot at one point with added you know three or four new people, and it's just you know the typical weird long weird journey of a show to getting to air. So you, I mean, look, you've worked on a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could probably, I'm sure you've sold even more shows. Um, what brought you to this show? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because I think one of the a couple of things. One is I'm from Chicago. I've always wanted to do a Chicago set show. Mm-hmm. And this show has, like, really deep Chicago roots because it was Tracy Letts from Chicago. It was yeah. premiered at Steppenwolf. It's set in Chicago. So that was one thing. But the other thing was... You know, my whole career, like when I was on Frasier, the rule on Frasier was always like no topical references, no 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 contemporary references, nothing that would ever date the show. Like I remember one time somebody pitched a joke on Frasier about the Nederlanders, which is this New York turn of the century New York theatrical family, and somebody said no topical references. <laughs> so, um, so some part of the fun for me of this show is that we decided, well, let's try to make it feel a little more contemporary, and let's talk about like we have a a manual joke in our script, and we have a joke about the Cubs winning the World Series. So we're trying to, I, I trying to make it feel a little more of the moment, um, and talk about issues in the news. Like we have a racial a cop racial profiling episode that we're doing right now, and we did an episode about a hate crime against a Muslim businessman in the neighborhood. So we're trying to make it without getting too political. And you know, we had a Trump joke. <laughs> which, you know, we're trying to actually. So that was the other to answer your question. That was the other appeal to me. Was like, oh. It's be kind of interesting for once in my career to try to do something that feels like of the moment. Sure. And what, I mean, I guess it is, those things are built into this because of the play and, and I guess because of the time. I mean, it feels like, and you must have seen this over the past 25 years, this kind of swing back to a kind of Norman Lear type yeah. sitcom, which it feels like the multicams especially are really leaning into. It seems like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like One Day at a Time, I know, yeah. and uh, the Carmichael Show, and you know, those are things we've talked about a lot in our writer's room. And we're trying to find that balance, which is hard. Like We're trying to find the balance between it. Because we also have like Judd Hirsch and Katie Segal yeah. and Jermaine Fowler, who people don't know yet, but will will know for sure. some uh, way or another. <laughs> um, whether it's our show or somebody else's show, we'll make him a star. Um, so we also want to balance, like, oh, they're also good actors and funny actors, and so we can do dating stories and relationship stories, but balanced off with the fact that this is set in a gentrifying neighborhood in a city that has is my favorite city in the world, but also has a lot of problems. Yeah. You know, it's hard to turn on the news without seeing issues in Chicago, which I think are not unique to Chicago. It's a mic- Chicago's like a microcosm of all the things that are going on in America. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of, like, you know, we tried very hard to... In assembling the cast, we tried really hard to, to have a lot of different voices. So we have, like, you know, a female cop. We have a Muslim business owner. We have a young African-American uh, kid. But we also have a young African-American cop. So, we're, you know, we tried to, uh, you know, we tried to engineer the show in such a way that if there was an issue that came up like gun control, there'd be people who are pro-gun control, people who are strongly anti-gun control, and, and we could have interesting discussions about those things. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, the, it seems like the discussions are the easy part yeah. in many ways. Yeah. I mean, it's so much on everyone's mind, and again, you guys have been working on this for over a year, yeah. but that's been the national conversation for a long time. Tell me about the comedy yeah. of this. I mean, has it been harder? Has it been easier? You've worked in multicams, you've worked in single cams. What kind? What is the angle on comedy on this show? 
I think, you know... How did you guys find it, too? We're, well, I would say we are finding it. You know, week by week, I mean, it's been a while since... I, it's, you know, I did the Odd Couple, and it, 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 I, it got smoother every year, mm-hmm. easier every year. And then going back to a new show again, I was like, oh, God damn it, new shows are hard. <laughs> like, it's just finding... And a lot of it is just finding the wheelhouse of the actors, mm-hmm. you know, and like... Oh, that didn't work. And then the next week, oh, but when she did that, that was hilarious. So now we know what direction to steer in. Um, you know, Judd Hirsch obviously, <laughs> you know what Judd Hirsch can do because you've been right. seeing it for years and he's awesome. Um, what can't he do? That's yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, so, but yes, the comedy, you know, finding the comedy has been really challenging and finding the comedy. And by the way, it's interesting because we premiered last night. And um, we had we put a joke in the pilot. We were really unsure about where Jermaine Fowler's character is talking to Katie Scull's character, who she's a cop. And he goes to take a painting off the wall, and he says, "Oh, I must really trust you. I just turned my back on a Chicago cop." And she says, oh, "I don't. I would never shoot you. I've got my body cam on." <laughs> and that was a real polarizing joke in the reviews. Some people cited, some critics cited that as like the, just the kind of edgy humor television should be doing. And other critics said, "I was really offended by that joke." So it's like, okay, I guess it's going to be one of those shows maybe where not everybody's entirely happy about some of the edgier stuff. So, so, so how's the room having I, I mean, I assume you guys are having those conversations. Yeah, it is. absolutely. How are you landing on what works, what doesn't? How are you and the, the, your co-showers creating a clear target? I think I think what we've landed on is it's okay if we, as long as we have different Points of view, like as long as the show is, I think what we decide is we're in trouble if the show develops a point of view. Like for example, if the show becomes an anti-cop show, mm-hmm. that's bad, you know, because we're not anti-cop, you know, uh, and we have two cops on the show who are very good cops. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's really and like it's okay to make a Trump joke, but we don't want to become an anti-Trump, you know, you know, like partly just it's probably that's just a practical view. We don't want to alienate forty-six percent of the country, but also it just I guess that's that's too easy. It's too easy to kind of just keep shooting at the same targets. So that's kind of the challenge comedically is trying to find a way that it's like oh um, you know okay we just did a you know a Trump joke, but can we find a joke that Maz Gerbani's character can come in with a pro-Trump joke? You know because um, he's kind of this you know we, in the play there was a character who was a businessman who and who was a, a Russian businessman who we decided to make um, uh, a Muslim from Iraq. And it's been kind of freeing in a way because he can, in some ways, he's like a, he's our Archie Bunker character. He's sort of the 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 most un PC character of all. And it's interesting. We just like it's more mm-hmm. interesting coming from an immigrant. Um, but so he's become that voice a lot of the voice of the person saying to the college student, you know, you know, oh my God, what are you angry about this week? <laughs> you know, you you, uh, you know, you're young, you're rich, you're white, you won, take a lap, you know. Um, so it's you know it's balanced to answer your question. I think we're. I think we're finding like everything's okay as long as we're balanced. Yeah, that makes sense. And and tell me about the room, the makeup of the room, and how you put this room together. Well, it's a it's a great room, and we tried for sure to find as much balance as possible. I mean, ethnically, um, gender wise, um, but but also not just that, but like. We have some stand-up comics, but then we like I came in. I was a journalist, and we have people who are you know Yale history majors, and we just so. And that's always for me, always the key. Putting a room together is just like trying to find the, the most 
the most diverse voices you can find sure. in every way. Yeah. Uh, how's the room run? What's it look like on a day-to-day basis? I mean, what, what episode are you guys on now? We're f- filming... On Tuesday, we're filming episode seven. Okay. Um, we're... we're I probably shouldn't say this, but we're insanely behind. <laughs> and, and right, everybody, everybody that's true. Every I guess so. Uh, that's true. Yes, um, but um, so you know, we're like we have we broke off a room to work on episode eight while we're trying to break our room is trying to break episode nine, and then we're going to go episode seven. You know, which I think I have found is the hardest part of show running is just. And that you know we're, you know we're going to be looking at music for episode four, getting notes on episode the cut of episode five, editing episode six. Shooting episode seven, polishing episode eight, and breaking episode nine, like in a day. Wow. And I often have people like in the post will come to me and say, what do you think about that scene in episode six? And I'm like, can you tell me what episode six is about? Because I have no idea. Of course. That, that's one of the hardest things is just keeping six shows in your head at one that's time. That's enormous. And it's been great having partners with Neil and Garrett because yeah. we can split up off. We can take different things. But, um, uh, yeah, so, you know, we've been... Every show is interesting. I feel like every show finds its its like system. Mm-hmm. We've been gang writing a lot of these episodes, really? which has been kind of interesting. Um, in writing them in the room, which is like the Chuck Lorre style, and I came out of Frasier, which was the complete opposite. It was yeah. you were given an episode, you were given three days out of the room to write an outline, then you were given a week out of the room to come up with the draft, and it was expected that when that draft came in, it was. It was a day's polish away from going to the table. Um, We have been, I don't know, we we talked about doing it that way, and it's just getting because we didn't have a lot of time, and, and it's also on a new show... It's easier on a show. Like it was easy when I came on Frasier. It was season seven. Sure. I pretty much knew what, how the characters yeah. talked, so it was easy for me to go off and write a draft, even though I was a new the new guy. Um, it's harder on a new show. So I think we found like well, let's just find it together. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll change next year. But uh, so anyway, so lots of gang writing, lots of gang rewriting, sending people off to do scenes. Right now, like mm-hmm. yesterday, um, four or five people banged a draft together of episode eight that they're now going through reading. You know, it's kind of a bit of a Frankenstein draft. They're, sure. they're streamlining, and 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 then over the weekend, Neil and Garrett and I are going to come in and take a big pass at it, and, and you know, fuss with it, punch it up, and everything. <clears throat> so, so that's kind of how we've been doing it. It's, it, and it, I would not say it was a conscious decision. It just kind of happened that way. It's interesting. Every, like I said, it's it's weird. Every show, I guess, maybe it's just based on who's in the room and who you have, and. And I feel like shows find their own weird. The show, like the show, kind of tells you how it needs to be written. Sure. What's been the sharpest learning curve on this show, particularly? I think it's been a couple things. One is we're trying consciously, and CBS is encouraging us this, but we like we we're not we're not opposed to it. Like to do a show in one that's large, like a, it's. I mean, obviously, multicam has its roots in theater, mm-hmm. um, but we're trying to do really embrace that and like let's just keep it in that as much as possible in that one set. It feels like, like a lot. Cheers, in yeah. such a great way. Yeah. like Cheers, yeah. like Taxi, especially. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Not that we're saying we're <laughs> in that league. Um, God, you know, God, sure. God, you hope willing. You yes, yeah. Um, but so that's been challenging because it's harder to make stories when you're in one sure. place. Um, and we've been going out a little bit, um, you know. But I would say eighty percent of the show has been taking place in that one set. Um, so that's been a challenge. And then the other thing, as we discussed, was just sort of finding the level of topicality and issues versus character-based comedy and trying to blend those 
to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that's that's the, and the third challenge is um, it's eight characters and that's tough. Yeah. Like servicing eight characters in one episode is really challenging. We're discovering so that's Absolutely. that's been. Uh, you know, not just keeping the actors happy, but just feeling like they're all part of the conversation. And, you yeah. know, so, um, but it, as I said, new show is always a super steep learning curve. And I feel like I've been doing this for 18 years. And, and I remember somebody said to me once, well, must, you must have a formula down by now. And I was like, there's never a, f-. and every episode is a new, new learning curve. I mean, like, sure. like last week went last, the episode six went great. And then we started episode seven and it's like, how do we do this again? Um, I feel like everyone is just a, is a struggle, but you know they've been turning out well and and, and not getting a lot of sleep. But I got a hiatus coming up, so that's good. Sure. <laughs> that's nuts. Um, I'm curious to hear about other shows you were on from the beginning. Sure, I want to go, go back and I want to talk about Frasier eventually. But you know, coming into a show, whether you were running it or whether you were just hired on it, right? Finding the voice of the show and yeah. figuring out how it worked. Can you remember a time when it worked well or things you've taken from one show to the next, you know, the lessons you've been able to right. apply? Well, one thing, let me think. Well, I was on, this is not a comedy, but I, well, I guess it was in the comedy category for the Emmys. Um, but Desperate Housewives, sure. um, I spent six years there and ultimately ran the show for the last season. But... That was a really good lesson to me and something I've tried to take into development with me because Mark Cherry wrote a great pilot. And one of the things that was so great about that pilot was he gave every character a super strong drive that you could summarize in one sentence. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, it sounds easy, not as, not, you know, not as easy to execute, but that is really helpful to just know... Like, what does she want? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so that, and that in a way, like, I don't know if you would call that voice, but that defines those characters in a way that, you know, you can, you can drop that character into a situation and know how she's going to respond. Yeah. Um, and that's super helpful that where I've had a lot of, I've been on new shows. My, the first couple years of my career before I got on Frasier, I was on three different just horrible failures. Really? I mean, just shows they were, you know, that yeah. canceled, you know, I think three the, and done. Uh, yeah. I think the longest one went like 14 episodes. <laughs> um, so, and I think looking back, the problem was that we had a really hard time breaking stories in those shows. Cause it was like, I don't know what those characters want, mm-hmm. like what they, what, what they, you know, how, you know, how they relate to each other and like what, you know, like if you put her and him in a scene together, what would they mm-hmm. do? You know? So I think, that's the kind of thing, like, so like on Super Jones, for example, Master Bonnie's character, it's just, he is the, we, we, we decided he's more American than the American characters. He is, a, he's an immigrant, but he is a capitalist who believes in making money and, you know, he's a little bit of a Darwinian, you know, capitalist, even though he is, so, so like, okay, that's, like, that's an easy, like, you get his, you get him, and then and then Master Brani brings a lot, so much to that. He's sure. so funny, and he brings his own experiences. But if you know what the characters want, that's so easy. I mean, Fraser, you know, Fraser was looking for love and never finding it, but he led and he led with his heart on his sleeve. But like that was what he wanted, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
you know, and he want you know. So so it, it was it that that to me almost more than voices. The the want is what drives those characters. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes it clear to everyone. Yeah, right. What what yeah. the character yeah. is in a scene. Right. So those are the shows that I think that are so much easier to write. Yeah. You know. When you came, so you came into Fraser. You were sort of on Fraser for the second half of the series. Yes, um, the non Emmy, the non Emmy winning half. I prefer to call it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. um, coming in on season seven, though. Yeah. I mean, look. On the one hand, you're a young writer and you're excited. Oh to my be god, a part of the I show. could not have been more thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand. They've done 22 episodes for every season. Yes. What's left? Yes. It was tricky. And by the way, um, so my first season I was there, it was Chris Lloyd and Joe Keem running the show, and, and that was just like a master class and mm-hmm. story breaking, and they were brilliant. Um, yeah. How did, how did can we break that down sure. a little bit? How did they run the show? Were episodes broken in the room? Were they outlined in the room? What happened? Episodes were broken in the room, and one of the lessons that I learned from Chris was like, Fix all your problems upstream. Don't. Uh, so he would not send a story out until he felt it was ready. And I remember we, when we were breaking stories, he would often frustrate the room by saying, "We're two good ideas away here." And people, people would think, "Well, no, this feels like a story." And he'd say, "No, we're two and two And I think he was partly tongue in cheek, but we'd spend another day on the story, and then you'd be, you would find that one extra little layer. You know, and you'd be like, oh, oh my God, now it's now it's good. That's really so he never, you know, sometimes to a frustrating degree, he would not let a story leave the room until it was ready. And I remember Joe Keenan said something to me, which I thought was a great showrunning lesson. He said, you should approach every story, as a showrunner, you should approach every story you break, and so you're the one who has to write it. Because it's very different when you're like, yeah, this story's fine. If you're the person writing it, no, no, it's not. It's not fine. There's a giant hole in Act Two, and I don't know how to fill it. So Chris and Joe were great. They would they would fill the holes, mm-hmm. and so then so yeah. So we'd break it in the room, go off for like two days to write the outline. They were super. I think they were like, and they did a weird margin thing, but they would be like 13, 14 page outlines. Wow. And really, in some ways. You could almost format your outline and have two thirds of a script. It would be dialogue. There would be enter. It would right. be very much. Niles enters. He crosses to the kitchen. He, d- you know, da, da, da. Oh, wow. it was very specific outlines. You that would go back to the room. You get half a day of notes on that. Go and then you go off to write. So when you were going off to write, like you knew your story worked. Yeah. You knew where all the beats were. You know all the. You know what the act breaks were. You knew everything. So you, then you could just have fun and you could yeah. just write. So, jo- then you're just writing jokes. Right. And so your job was really just writing yeah. jokes at yeah. that point. Yeah. Getting the voices right. of the characters. Yeah. Them. So that's. I mean, that's like I said. That was amazing. It was just. Uh, 60% of what I learned, I learned from Chris Lloyd and Joe Keenan. And then the next year, Dan O'Shannon came in, and he's worked by the work on Spirit Jones with me now, which is really awesome. But he came in, and he was great because he was he, he came in, he's like, it's season eight, we got to shake things up a little bit. And so he, um, so we, we did some kind of interesting things that kind of broke the form a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, he and I wrote an episode that was kind of like a sliding doors episode where Frazier... Mm-hmm. On Valentine's Day, we did like a two alternative universe story, and we did an episode. He and Dan and I and Lori Kirkland Baker wrote an episode that won a Writers Guild Award that was set in a hospital, but it was like they were in the hospital. Niles was having a procedure, but they were remembering all of the things that had happened to them in this hospital. So there's all these flashbacks to when they were younger, and it was just sort of like a, but like, but they were kind of in a cool way watching the flashbacks as they were happening in present day. So you know, so that was also a great lesson that Dan was like. 
She's, you know, if you're going to be around this long, <laughs> you got to find some new things. You can't just keep doing the same. Now, sure. Fraser have a dinner party story. So, um, but yes, to answer your initial question that I veered so far away from, um, right. it was um, it was hard. It is hard, really hard to break stories um, in. You know, when, they, when it's episode 165, um, I don't know how they do it in The Simpsons, by the way, when they're up to like episode 550 or whatever. But um, it was also that I think for a young writer, it's a really good lesson because you have to start to really dig deep, mm-hmm. you know, and find um, and find those, you know, the, find the layers of the characters. Like, okay, that, you know, low hanging fruit is all gone. Yeah, <laughs> got to climb that tree and find some more. Did you feel as a new writer there and as really a new writer in TV that your voice was heard on the show? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I I was quiet. I was the Fraser Room was the most in that first year, and it was the Fraser Room was famously intimidating because. And, I, and I, I totally appreciate it now that I'm a showrunner. But Chris, a lot of times rooms are like loud and boisterous and people are, you know, young. Frazier was the quietest room in television. And I remember one time we were looking for a joke and there was like a 10-minute silence. And people were just thinking. And I came up with a joke and I sat there for like another five minutes and I thought... Is this joke worthy of breaking a fifteen-minute silence? I don't. And I finally, I pitched the joke, and Chris Lloyd just kind of looked at me and then dropped his head back down again. And I thought, Oh my God, why did I? I should never pitch it. And then five minutes after that, he said, "What was? What did you say again?" And I pitched, repitched my joke, and he said, "Yep, let's put that in." So it was a, it was, it was the kind of room where people really, in in a great way. You know, Chris encouraged people think before you pitch. Hmm. Like, don't pitch the first thing that pops in your head. We've all had that. We, we probably all had the same thought and discarded it. Of course. So, as a young writer, that was a really good lesson to, when you think of a joke, say it to yourself in your head. Think it through for a second. Is it right for the moment? Is it right for the character? Like, just have like, diag, diag <laughs> have a little diagnostic session of your joke yeah. in your head before you pitch it. Because I think that's one problem that sometimes young writers in an effort to be heard through a kind of stream of consciousness pitching, and that's so irritating as a showrunner. And Chris, and I, like I said, I appreciate now what Chris was doing. He was thinking. Right. <laughs> like, he was thinking. And it's hard to think when someone's chirping in your ear, unless, it, I mean, obviously, if it's a great pitch, you want to hear it. Mm-hmm. But if it's just the first thing that popped into your head, eh, sit on it for a little while. Yeah. Think well, about that, it. It's funny. I mean, that's... It feels like that's the approach we take when actually writing. Yes. So why not do that? Exactly. Also, makes exactly. Sense. Yeah. But I also a guy named Mark Reisman who came to my aid and said about halfway through my first season, face, he said, "You might want to talk a little more in the room." Like <laughs> I know you're sitting back and trying to. And it was, I was the only. It was all like co EPs and above, and sure. I was like a exec exec story editor. So I was the only low level person um, on that staff. So it was really. I mean, it was even extra intimidating. Yeah. And I was coming off of a show. Starring Andrew Dice Clay, so I was, like, was I, I was a show called Hits was my first show. Oh my god! Yeah, um, so it was like, oh my god! I, like, I don't know how I got here. Um, how did you get there? Well, I, I will tell you. Yeah. It's a, a, a I'll, I'll tell you the story. I, I owe it to a guy named an executive named Steve Stark, because the Fraser guys and I love them. The guys who created a show, but they were real credit snobs. And so he, this guy, I had done a couple of Paramount shows. Mm-hmm. Um, that failed. Hits was one of them, and the other one was a show called Duresta, both on UPN. I don't know. I know it was about a it was about a New York City subway cop, 
Um, okay. Starring a New York City subway cop turned stand-up comedian named John Dresta. Oh. Anyway, so I'd done those two shows. Both didn't last. But the guy, Steve Stark, uh, Paramount, thought I would be a good fit for Frasier. And so, but he knew but what... That they were what, what credit snobs they were, so he sent them my spec script, but and they said, "Where's his resume?" And he said, "Oh, you know what? His agent didn't send it to me. I'll get it to you guys later. Just read the script." Script. He kept stalling, and they and they said, well, "We read the script and we liked it, but we we really we still need the resume." And he said, and he was like, "God damn it! I'll call his agent right now." But I don't know what's going on. He it was sitting on his desk the whole time. Great. And so he waited. I think the morning, the morning of the interview, he sent it to my resume. So he made he made sure they couldn't cancel yeah. the interview, and I went in, and they even were joking about how terrible my resume was. <laughs> but I, but that, so I owe everything to Steve Stark. That's he, really he, great. he basically stonewalled them, and, uh, and yeah. until I got the job. That's hilarious. Um, Why did what did what was it about your work or your relationship with him that he thought you'd be a good fit for? The I show? don't know. That's, <laughs> I would love to know that question. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean. You know, I think one thing I tried to do, and I always try to tell this to young writers, was I tried to make, on those first shows, I tried to make myself as useful as possible, knowing that I was a, a baby writer and and they did not want to hear my voice along the room, but like on my first show, on my first day, and I, I thought everybody did this, and it turned out I was the only one, but I came in uh, on hits with... 10 story ideas like typed up and you know to hand in um, and I was like I looked around the room and I was like oh nobody else did this and I was kind of I was a little like nervous but I, you know they ended up doing two of them wow. so I think that I think maybe it was just that 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 I was like you know I had I had a, a midwestern work <laughs> ethic absolutely and try and it was just like I'm gonna I, I know how and and now as a showrunner I know how hard this like, story ideas is the hard, single hardest thing if you're a staff writer or a story editor and you can come in in the middle of the season and say hey I thought of a story idea over the weekend and we can use it I will put you on my shoulders and I will parade you around the room <laughs> seeing you know throwing palm leaves on your on the floor in front of you um, it's just so it's the hardest thing in sure. the world so I think I, I think that was if, if I could guess it would just be I was a hard worker and was trying to you know trying to make myself useful well it's funny this hasn't come up on the podcast in a while but there is this notion that you work so hard to get the job yeah that when you get the job it feels like I can relax for a minute, but that's really where yeah. the work starts, yeah. and you can't be afraid of work. Dan O'Shannon, who I mentioned, who's I've worked with on, yeah. on and off on like four different shows, and is super talented showrunner writer. But he he does a he's te- he's done some teaching, and he said he decided he said everybody teaches a class on how to get your first job. He said I want to teach a class, and so he's he, I think he's trying to set up a class on. How to how to be in a room, and it's a huge it's thing that a lot of people don't know how to do. Like I said, either they don't say anything, or they just. I mean, I worked with a guy on a show. I will not name his name. Who was just like it would be like if you know, like uh, the, the joke about oh, the, the, oh, the the guy's a dog a dog walker. So he didn't joke about a dog. He'd be like dog dog park <sighs> dog leash dog, dog collar. Like he was just like just shut up. Um, so you know, I think finding that way to make yourself. You Useful, but also knowing that the showrunner has has probably brought in his or her friends and colleagues that they really know they can rely on, and they want to hear primarily from them, but but they want to hear from you. Just right. You're there spot. for a reason. Yeah, you're there for a reason, and they're paying you, but it's just 
pick your spots. And like I said, oftentimes I try to say to people, maybe it's not in the room. Maybe you, maybe your spot is going to be that you come in on Monday morning. I worked with a guy uh, on a show recently uh, who did not talk. He was a young writer. Didn't this is not? And I was at the showrunner on the show, mm-hmm. but he was not very vocal in the room. But he would come in on Monday morning, and he would be like, "Hey, remember we there was like a like a notion of an area that we were t- kicking around on Friday." I just typed up like a one page like a right. synopsis of what we were saying and maybe figured filled it fleshed it out a little bit and came up with some act and I remember one time it was Greg Garcia was a showrunner and he read it he was like oh I'm just sending this to the network it got approved like that was our next story <laughs> and so amazing. this guy like so proved himself yeah um so there are other ways besides pitching jokes that you can prove yourself and sure. like I said story is story is a single I that was another great lesson I learned from Chris Floyd was he would say if we have five days to get a script ready if, and we spend four days getting the story right like we can write a draft in, in the, on one day and we'll make it funny and then we'll fix it during the week during production but like if the story doesn't work we'll, we'll, we'll be banging ourselves against our heads against the wall all week yeah. and it's never going to work like so Story is, I mean, story. I think that's one of the things that people underestimate. Is like, I think people come into rooms like, I'm going to pitch jokes. Like, no, story is everything. And if you can come in with either a story idea from scratch or a story fix of something we've been, that we've been. I mean, we're banging our heads on the story right now, and it's like we don't have an period uh, uh, donuts. We don't have an act two of a story. If somebody came in Monday morning with an act two, I would, you know, <laughs> I would pick up their option right then <laughs> for season two if there is a season two. Um, so you know, I think it's just. I think to me, the key is just, you know, what does the showrunner need? What mm-hmm. are the what are the what are things what are things that are not happening, and how can I do it? And maybe that is jokes, and maybe we have a couple. We hired a couple of new writers that are stand up comics, and like they. They're they're quiet during the week, but then we put, when then we put a joke room together before the table reading. That's when they shine. So that's great. Like they're earning their keep, yeah. you know. But it's just how do you earn your keep? I mean, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, really the question. Well, it seems like knowing your own strength, yeah, is a big part of it. For and sure. Then looking at and reading the room, yeah, right? what what's necessary? Exactly. Yes, reading the room and reading the showrunner, and you know, without being too needy, occasionally saying like, "Hey, uh, what what could I be thinking about this weekend?" Yeah. You know. Well, that's the hard part too. Yeah. Right? Is you can't teach someone to read a room. No, no. And some people are terrible at it. And, you know, unfortunately, those people often are talented, but they just don't last because yeah. that's that's a huge part of it. I mean, a lot of funny people are a little OCD or ADD or whatever the acronym, <laughs> acronym of choice. Um, but it's tricky. And sometimes, you know, some of those people, I've hired those people because they're so talented that I'm willing to overlook that mm-hmm. stuff and just try to corral them. Um, but, yeah, no, reading a room is really important. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, you know, it seems like you've done so many different kinds of shows. Mm-hmm. Again, whether running them or being on them, left to your own devices. What's the Bob Daly show? It's funny, I, I have to say, I, 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 have, I have really, like, it, it was been really fun for me coming back to Multicam, mm-hmm. which I know is a much maligned medium these days, um, although also ex- extremely popular medium. Yeah. I mean, look at Big Bang. I and, think it's you know, turning back. I hope so, yeah. It feels like it. And I love it because, like, you know, I'm a theater geek at heart, and when I was, a, before I did this, I was a journalist, and I was a theater critic, so I saw, and I was in Chicago, I saw, sorry, saw five plays a week. I love the, the, the I love doing it in front of a live audience, yeah. I think the live audience, 
I've been on single cam comedies and you can lie to yourself and say, that joke works, right? Yeah, yeah, no. We, and then you see it in, you're in the editing room, you see it like that joke didn't work. Mm-hmm. An audience will tell you if a joke works or not, you know, and, I know, and it drives me crazy because the reviews of Superior Jonas just came out and they were mostly positive, but we got so many people said like, oh, I'm sick of a canned laugh track. It's not a canned laugh track. Those are, we, I, we did not sweeten. Those are real people in an audience laughing and they really do keep you honest and, and half the fun for me of a multicam is um, and we have and it's been especially fun on this show like oh a joke didn't work in the first pass like let's huddle let's find a new joke and sometimes we have a couple in our back pocket ready to go or is it, but and then bringing that audience out on the second pass and hearing the audience respond to it is so I mean that's just such a adrenaline rush yeah. that you don't get on a single cam um, but so I love I love the multicam I really do um, and I think partly because I like you know I think people often your first good experience in the business is what you try to recreate over and over again <laughs> and Frasier was such a great experience for me that I think I've gone back to that that said I loved Dust for Housewives and it was really fun I, my that was my first hour and I remember Joe Keenan and I were both there at the same time and our first day we were writing a scene we wrote a, he and I were writing something together and we wrote a stage direction that said like you know as the rain falls you know the, the earth whatever moves revealing a dead hand they were like we never got to write that on Frasier that was cool <laughs> so um, yeah something a little more filmic yeah so that was actually so that you know that was you know so honestly I, I sound a little wishy-washy saying this but like I would be very happy moving back and forth that's great because um because um but and then but to me it's always about getting back to you know, I mean, the great lesson from Frazier was like just try not to pander to the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, try to try to assume the best of the audience. Try to assume they will get your your. You know, I, I, I have been on shows where people's showrunners said like that's a great joke. I don't think people are going to get it. Like, mm-hmm. and I've tried. Like, I thought, oh no, let's not say that. Let's, and maybe not everybody will get it. I mean. But let's you know so that's so that that's kind of been for better or for worse that's been the you know whether I've succeeded or not that's kind of always been the thing I've taken away from that show. I think that's you know it's, it's a tough thing to do yeah. working in network TV. Yes. Um, so how do you contend with that? Say on on Superior, how do you contend with that when this is a show that was poured over? Yes. For over a year. Yes, it was. You guys wrote and recast and rewrote and all this stuff. Yeah. So how do you keep it? How do you maintain the vision? I guess. How do you maintain it? The thing that you guys wanted to do. It is. It's hard because sometimes you, like during the week, you know, there's like the production week, and. You do sometimes find you're getting caught up in like, oh shit, that scene's not working, and let's just let's throw some dick jokes in, <laughs> you know. And you have to sometimes step back and go like, no, we don't want. I mean, yes, we, have we done dick jokes? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm not gonna lie, but like trying to pull back and say, no, that's not. That's you know what? Actually, that's the most. I'd rather not get a laugh than have to then do it, then do a. A, a laugh that's going to make us sad in the editing room, you know. Um, and again, we, I, I'm not I'm not going to be the guy who says that I don't ever do that. <laughs> but are um, you wary of a, a cheap joke? Yeah, let's try let's, let's try not to get cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing, and I have to say, CBS to their great credit has been really good about this. They will say to us. Like they, we had a, this episode we're filming this week is about uh, the lead character Jermaine Fowler, who's like a 25 year old African American kid in Chicago, coming in and saying, "I just got stopped, and I just had another stop and frisk." Mm-hmm. Like the, the cops in this neighborhood is gentrifying, and and people are, you know, I think people are 
trying to drive people out like me out of the neighborhood. I was, you know, just because I'm wearing a hoodie. So it's an interesting, you know. And then we have two. We have a cop, Katie Sagal, saying, "Hey, wait a minute! Like, it's so easy for people to blame the cops for everything. Like, we're trying to. Do, it's, it's. We have a hard job, and, and so we're, you know, we're trying to see both sides of that debate. Um, and CBS, to their credit, when they when we broke the out the story and it was outlined in outline form, they said to us. Uh, just make sure it's funny because it feels like it's super serious. And so we said, okay, absolutely. And so we worked really hard. We actually spent one day just adding jokes. <laughs> and after the table read, they said, that was great. You probably went too far. Like, let's, wow. scoop, let's scoop some of those jokes out and let some of those real moments, let's let them breathe. Like the moment was the moment where the three young African-American characters, one of whom is a cop, are talking. They're saying to him, like, how can you be a cop? Like, how, like, how, can you, how do you justify being a cop in this city? And he talks about why he came. You know, it's, and, and we, had, we put some goofy jokes in that scene trying to make it funny. And CBS, again, to their credit, said, you know what? You, that's okay. There's a joke at the end of the scene that we're building to. We don't mind if you, go, if you go a page and a half without a joke. That's okay. So they've been really good about that. I mean, I think in some ways we've been almost more conscious of finding the laughs. And that's the downside of a studio audience is that when they're not laughing, that's the loudest silence in the world. Um, but you can also tell sometimes when they're, oh, but they're interested. Right. They're not rustling, you know. <laughs> they're not, like, you, they're not reaching for their cell phones. Yeah. Um, so... Um, and approaching it like a play, I think, lets you have both. Yes. It lets you understand the audience, lets the audience understand. For sure. That way. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can't become captive. That's, that's the downside. You can't become like the captive to the studio audience. And you have to kind of say, like, and like I said, on Fraser Sundays, it would be like, okay, that laugh, that joke did not get the biggest laugh, but it's a smart joke. Mm-hmm. We liked it. The people who did like it, who got it, liked it. <laughs> sure. So we're going to be okay with that, you know. And especially for Fraser, yeah, that kind of joke. Right. I mean, this right. is where those guys live. Yes, exactly. And in Fraser, and also one of the things I learned on that show was that people would be like, okay, I don't really get the specifics of that joke, but I know that Fraser's a snooty guy, right. and he's making a joke about the opera, and his dad is is shitting on his love of opera. Right. I get I get I get the I get the framework of the joke. You know, I don't know. I mean, I know who Philip Glass is, but I, but like I get the joke anyway. So that's, that's you know. That's I mean, and that's a tough line to walk. Is yeah. that showing that it's a joke, maybe you don't get the specific, right. but you understand the joke, right? That's, and again, that comes that comes from they created great characters yeah. and a relationship between a guy, a super snooty guy, and his father who loves him but doesn't understand him. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's like once you, if you know that relationship, the jokes are going to work. It's true, whether or not you get the specifics. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Were you before we wrap up um, in the, those years on Frasier? Were you able to tell stories that were personal to you? As a you know, working on a show that's not yours, I'm right. curious about having your voice on that. I think. Show. I mean, I feel like always the best stories come out of people telling something that happened to them mm-hmm. over the weekend, and that's not always possible. But even when it's you know, I mean, like for example, we did we did an episode of Frasier where um, Roz's daughter writes on a painting uh, at Fraser's house with a, piece of, with a pencil like she's like a, and that came out of my daughter I took my daughter to an art class at LACMA and she I caught her a sec of it's inches away but she was pointing at a multi-million dollar Paul Clay <laughs> painting with a pencil and during an art class and I so so like little things like that always you know I told that story in the room and somebody said oh that, that's a funny story yeah. that could be an episode um, but um, yeah I think always 
whether whether or not the story came out of your life, putting yourself in one of my favorite, one of the things I always think is most valuable to do is like like we have an episode up in the board right there. Your listeners can't see it, but um, but like what we you know we put we break the episode in cards. I like to do like once that's done, I like to kind of put myself in the headspace of each character in the story and just go through it and go like, okay, I'm Judd Hirsch in this episode, like. And this for this thing happens in the cold open. Like, what am I? Th- well, like, what am I thinking in this scene? You know, so you know, trying to trying to make myself, you know, walk through the story in in the headspace of that character, I think is really helpful. And you can't help but bring a lot of your own life to that. And you know, if I were if I were that guy, what would I be thinking in this scene? And when, when when this when this when this kid walks in and says to me, he just got stopped and frisked. What, what what what's my reaction? You know, and then try to put myself in the Drain Fowler's character's head and mm-hmm. think what what you know. So I think when you do that, whether or not it's a story of that you that I've never been stopped and frisked. I'm not a 25 year old African American guy, but I can at least try to, you know, in, you know, the what if of it all. Mm-hmm. I think you can't help but bring your own experiences to that. Absolutely, and and it humanizes every character right. too. It exactly, makes it not just uh, an exercise. Yeah, uh, that's really that's good advice. Um, something I I commented on watching the show last night. Which talking to you now makes so much sense was the pace of the show. Oh, <laughs> I love how fast they all talk. Oh, you don't give a lot of air to those laughs. You go to the next joke or the next line. I think that's really great. Was there pushback on that? No, there wasn't. And I tell you that it actually came out of the fact that we were like four minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> and so our editor, the first cut, of, the first cut. He was like, it's it's fast, but I got it down to time. I think it's great. I mean, yeah, it feels yeah. like uh, seeing a play. It feels like everybody is confident in what they're doing yeah. and saying. And well, that came out of, I mean, Judd has been doing it forever. And Jermaine Fowler has not been doing it forever, but he's a natural. Mm-hmm. And it just, a lot of, and Master Bonnie, I think a lot of that comes out of having stand-ups who are also good actors. Sure. Like, Master Bonnie is a really good stand-up, but he... He's just good at like, and Dave yeah. Keckner, you know, also the same thing. I mean, he's so funny. So, you know, yeah, confidence is everything. I mean, yeah. one of my first jobs out of, out of college, actually my very first job out of college, I was the assistant manager of a stand-up comedy club. And that was one of the things I learned was like, oh, you got to take that, like, the people that walked up there without and didn't have confidence mm-hmm. got eaten, eaten alive by the audience. Yeah. So it's like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pitch with confidence. You gotta act with confidence. All that, you know, like otherwise, otherwise, you know, you're gonna get eaten alive. Absolutely, and that's that's the best advice. Uh, I feel like we have only scratched the surface. We'll do this again. It was so much time. fun. Thanks so it much. So quick. Thank you. Good luck with the show. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 